the further discussion portion of my interview with Raul Powell. If you haven't yet listened to the rapid fire portion, I highly recommend you check that out. But if not, this discussion is just a free-flowing open discussion I had with Raul before the rapid fire portion for about 45 minutes. Raul is a former hedge fund manager with GLG Global Macro Fund. He's the publisher of the Global Macro Investor and Macroeconomic and Investment Strategy Research Service. And he's the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, a financial media company. So he's got a tremendous amount of experience and a lot of really good insight on what's going on in the global economic, financial, and monetary systems. And so uh, I really wanted the chance to just have an open dialogue with him to pick his brain a little bit and get him to follow up on some of the things he's been uh, posting lately on Twitter. So that's it. I hope you enjoy. Let's do it. Raul, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Not at all. Good fun. Looking forward to it. I have to say, uh, it, it actually very much is an honor to get the chance to speak with you. Um, you know, you've had a tremendous amount of experience in this industry, and we're, we're, we've only got an hour, and I'm sure we could fill up three or four, but, and there's so much to talk about, especially now, you know, in the last couple of days. Um, but I, yeah, I just did, did want to say thank you. Um, I've actually, I thought that my introduction to you was via the uh, Stefan Levera podcast recently. And then when I was prepping for this podcast, I realized that I'd come across a number of your videos, both with you in them and Real Vision's videos many times before. I just hadn't put the two, the two together. Um, right. So I'm a huge fan of, of what you're doing at Real Vision. I mean, the, the content is so quality and the access to the people that you get. You know, you have amazing interviews and stuff like that. So uh, kudos to you on that work. I'm sure we'll break into it a little bit uh, as we go along. But thank you for, for coming on. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. So because you have such, such a depth and breadth of experience and you're kind of playing in so many different fields, traditional finance, you know, new media, Bitcoin and crypto, it's kind of hard to determine where to start with something like this. But I think... <laughs> Where I want to start is just what's super relevant right now. I was going to ask you what's kind of top of mind, most interesting thing going on in your world right now, but you had that amazing Twitter thread uh, yesterday where you just kind of, you, you provided evidence for kind of the, the emergence of your thesis that you've been talking about for the last, let's say, three to five years, if not longer, and you showed a lot of that evidence. So why don't we just crack right into that and what the hell is going on and you know where where we are. Yeah, I mean this is a it's a very big question. It's going to take a bit of a long answer. <laughs> sure, so sure. I apologize for all of that. Um so my job is to look at the world's most complex beautiful jigsaw puzzle which is the global economy. So as a macro um investor, I look at all asset classes around the world, every single country, region, and I look at the interrelationships between those economic data and economic growth and looking for the main major trends and the big opportunities that lie ahead. So my thesis for a long time had been that we had been in the latter stages of a debt super cycle. So why do I say stuff like that? Well, generally, all of these things are cyclical. The world builds up too much debt. And then after a while, it kind of expunges the debt and you have some debt clearance events, or it can just take a very long time, like it's been taking in Japan. So the world built up an extraordinary amount of debt, never, be see, never seen before amounts of debt. So then 2001 came along, and the first part of that started getting a bit shaky. 
So there was a lot of equity, people investing in equities, too much speculation. Uh, people started pulling out of that and some of the more indebted companies went bust and a few frauds happened. But what everyone was expecting was the big debt unwind didn't happen. It doubled up. It doubled up as the Fed cut rates and all the central banks around the world cut rates even lower. And what happened there was that the that everybody took the opportunity to add to their debt. So governments added to their debts. Households bought houses in record numbers. They borrowed on their credit cards. They borrowed in every way they could. And then the corporations borrowed. So at the end of 2008, the next rolling part of this debt unwind started. And this is the big one, was the financial um, and the household debt, really, followed by the banks, because the banks were a direct consequence of the household debt. So that blew up big time. Um, and then we start again. And the next debt buildup is the corporate debt market. So the corporate debt market wasn't really affected by 2008. And they've doubled again since then. So it just doesn't stop because interest rates are low. And there's an optic that low interest rates are, you must borrow, you must borrow. It doesn't happen in other countries so much anymore. But we've seen that across the world. So the, this rolling kind of debt unwind is something I've been looking at as rates get lower and lower and lower, weird things happen. So when the Federal Reserve raised rates um, last year, they almost broke the system and rates barely went up. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, well, that, that can't be. It's because there's so much debt that it's the rate of change of the rate of increase in rates that matters the most. Mm -hmm. So if your mortgage on your house goes from 1% to 3%, it's gone up 600%. <laughs> People don't realize that. So that makes a massive difference to your expenditure because you'll have adjusted your lifestyle or you'd have borrowed more money depending on the affordability. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you can't afford things. So I started noticing, so that's the big flagging that, you know, I, I've been looking for this event, um, knowing that the business cycle is the, is the key determinant of these kind of outcomes. So in a booming business cycle, you're looking to invest in emerging markets, you're looking to invest in risky things, and that's all, all well and good. But then the business cycle rolled over in 2015. The oil price halved and almost halved again. And everyone's like, whoa, what happened there? And the dollar had gone up. And that was interesting. The world almost came to a halt, but the US just avoided a recession and the world, some of the world was in a recession, some wasn't. And that was driven by the dollar. So that's a really interesting thing. Why the dollar? Because in that borrowing boom we've had, the dollar has been the currency that everybody's borrowed. So the rest of the world's borrowed $13 trillion. A trillion with a T is an extraordinary amount of money. Mm -hmm. The biggest position the world has ever known is the short dollar trade that is basically um, the borrowing of US dollars. So once the dollar starts going up and interest rates in the US start going up and the US growth was stronger than anywhere else, guess what? Money started piling in the US and the dollar started going up. So that kind of broke the world in 2015, 16. The Chinese stimulated, everything was all right for a while. And then the Fed started raising rates and then the dollar started creeping back up again and then the world blew up. Um, and the world blew up not in equity market terms, although we saw December, November last year got really hairy. What really was is the bond market snapped. It went, no, this is not going to happen. The yield curve flattened, interest rates collapsed as they said, you're going to go into recession. And we saw recessionary patterns in spending, world trade and everything else. And then the final icing on the cake was that Donald Trump decided that trade tariffs were a good idea. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they're not a good idea if you want to keep world trade going, because it does two things. One, 
it lowers world trade anyway. Okay, so that means that everybody's GDP gets hit. But secondly, if world trade is mainly conducted in US dollars, and the US is the larger buyer of foreign goods, well, it means there's less dollars in the system, because there's less buying from the US. Mm -hmm. So guess what, there's a shortage of dollars, so the dollar goes up. Cut to a few days ago, the Fed meeting, the Fed kind of know some of this situation. They know that the global economy is weak, the global PMI is now below 50, meaning the global economy is pretty close to contraction, it's certainly zero growth right now. The US is slowing fast as well. So what do the Fed do? They only cut 25 basis points, which wasn't enough, because what happened was the dollar exploded higher again. That resulted, that policy error resulted in the Chinese currency breaking its key levels. It resulted in currencies all around the world starting to break their key levels. And we're starting to see the snowballing knock-on effects as, as things start to shift of the US monetary policy being too tight for the rest of the world, too many borrowings in dollars, the dollar being forced higher, nobody being able to stop it, and this loop of events that will end up leading to probably the big unwind in corporate bonds. Now, why corporate bonds are important is twofold. So, sorry, I told you it was a big story here. <laughs> okay. The corporate bond thing is twofold. Why it's important is why are there so many corporate bonds? What, what are the companies borrowing for? It's not like they're building factories. They're borrowing money really simply because in America there's a tax loophole. And the tax loophole is it's better to have debt than equity. So they just buy back their equity and issue debt. So they force their share price higher whilst giving themselves stock options as a management team, pat themselves on the back that the share price has gone higher, rape the company, get rich. Um, so Okay, so that's what they're doing. But we know that they sell them to the pension system. And there's, we've got a record number of pensioners hitting America right now as the baby boomers turn to retirement. Now, they didn't, have, they didn't save enough money. Wall Street promised that, that their pensions would be enough. They're not. So these guys are taking a lot of risk into their final years because they're desperately trying to get to their number, you know, the number that they have in their head to retire on or to fulfill the black hole that these pension funds have. So they've been buying these corporate bonds. So as more and more bonds get issued, the credit gets downgraded and they're now all triple B, which is one notch above junk bonds. There's four trillion of these sitting there, makes it a trillion of them held by five companies, General Electric, General Motors, Ford. Uh, Dell and um, AT&T. So it's all very precarious because if they get downgraded to junk, the thing goes illiquid. So who are the buyers of those is the pension system. And the pension system is it's interesting because places like Illinois, they were bankrupt. They didn't, the pension system didn't have enough money to pay for the teachers and firemen and um, all of those people. So they raised taxes and they put the tax receipts to buy back into the pension. And those tax receipts bought those corporate bonds. So what you've got is the only buyer of corporate bonds in the world is basically the pension system. And the only buyer of equities left in the world is the corporate buybacks. Mm -hmm. So they're all correlated. Both of those things are correlated to the business cycle. When the business cycle goes weak, and I think the US is going into recession, then what you find is you find that um, Corporate buybacks stop because companies are earning less money, so they can't afford to pay back the debt. So they stop. So that's the buyer of equities leaving the building. Now, the problem is, is the tax receipts that buy the corporate bonds are also completely correlated to GDP growth, because obviously people pay more taxes when the economy is going well. Mm -hmm. So then the largest buyer of corporate bonds is about to leave the building as well. Then you've got a big fucking mess. Mm -hmm. So 
that's where we are and we're kind of coming into the point and for me it's always to do with the bottom of the business cycle that's when things get ugly because when growth is there things are okay when growth starts dying away you start to find all of these big problems lurking beneath the surface yeah and so i mean listening <laughs> li- listening to you speak i mean I, I i i love what you're saying and it's really interesting to be speaking with someone that kind of has a fairly 10,000-foot view of the spider web of how all this interconnects, right? Because it, it's very easy to oversimplify how these things work, either on the positive or the negative. And I'm probably guilty of that in the past on the negative. I just kind of looked out and said, the government can't print that much money. And, you know, a, a couple other key things, things are going to go to hell. But that, that, that really influences uh, the timeline on which you might be correct. That's still probably true. But it may be true in a 20, 30 year period, whereas if you have the detailed kind of analysis that you just described and that you know, you've made a career of, then you know, you're probably going to have a little bit of a more refined target on the timeline of this kind of stuff. So, okay, let's talk about time. And you're dead right. So yeah. you know, my job is we all know it's all a bit screwed. Yeah. But as you say, we've known it's been screwed since 1999, but it's still been kind of morphing around of of you know, one bubble after another, and we, we, we're uncomfortable with it. We understand there's something wrong. We don't know what's happening. This is the, you know, the rise of Bitcoin comes out of this, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to all of this later. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that's happening, and we all know it's wrong. And you know, the Occupy Wall Street, the 1%, the whole thing is all part of the same thing, is the over-financialization of the world. And it's made us very uncomfortable because we kind of know that we're the collateral damage that's going to occur in this, mm-hmm. whether it's the saver, whether it's somebody in a job, whatever it may be, we kind of feel it intrinsically. So let's talk about the end game. <coughs> Excuse me. Why I'm particularly interested right now is because when you look at the central banks and where they are in their cycles, the US, and everyone's like, the US dollar is going to collapse. Well, the US is the least indebted in terms of percentage of the main three economies. Mm-hmm. It, is, it has the least um, central bank assets as a percentage of GDP. It, is got, it has, actually has interest rates. The others are negative. So the US is by far the golden child. Why would you ever short the US dollar? In fact, you just want all your assets in US dollars. Right. So what you've actually got, so let's look at Europe and Japan and China. Yeah. So China is screwed with a capital F. It's it's like there is, you know, they have so much debt, they've overextended, they have no ability to raise capital. And the issue is they need dollar funding desperately. So they're out of the game. There's almost nothing they can do right now, which is why they're starting to weaken their currency. But in the and the end game also is their population is now getting older faster than any other country in the world. So that lowers the rate of GDP growth and productivity generally within a nation. So they've got a big problem on their hands. Mm -hmm. But Japan is where my interest really lies because Japan has the oldest population. China will overtake it soon. But they've got an older population and they were just hoping that they can manage this situation. So in that quiet Japanese way of managing their situation, their central bank ended up buying 70% of all the government debt. And then half the stock market. I mean, it is unprecedented in all economic history. Mm-hmm. But the Japanese have got away with it. Nothing went wrong. So why not logically conclude that in the next recession, they'll go to 100% of the debt? Mm-hmm. Because this is this MMT movement you're hearing about is debt doesn't matter if it's in your own currency. That's the basic premise. Right. 
Okay, so the logical conclusion is, is if the central bank fund all of the debt, then everything we ever learned in finance doesn't mean anything. And therefore, they can just write off the debt, which is what a debt jubilee is. And you'll hear this term coming up more and more. Mm-hmm. So the debt jubilee is the central bank government say, oh, forget about it. You don't need to pay any of it back. So what happens to the currency? My guess is the currency absolutely collapses. Right. So Japan is really the next recession away. Call it this recession away because they're about to go into recession from ending the game. The Europeans are also about the same. I mean, they've bought almost all the German government bonds in existence. There's very few bonds available in Europe, but they're going to keep going because they have to. And they're going to cut rates again because it's all they can do. In the end, they're just driving their banking system into bankruptcy, as are the Japanese. So all of their banks are on the edge of a cliff. They look like they're about to go into the meltdown mode as we start going into the end game. Now, what's interesting and, and is... this is what you banks tweeted about, some of what you tweeted about yesterday in that thread. Yeah, and, and last week I had another big tweet about all of yeah, this Yeah, I want to direct everybody to your Twitter feed and, and those threads in particular because they really were great. So just I wanted to get that Thank in, you. but go on, go on. Um, so, um, so if the banks go, well, what are these central banks going to do? They're going to have to cut rates further, which mm-hmm. drives the bank prices down further, and they're going to have to bail out the banks, which means increasing their balance sheets again, which means buying yet more of the government debt. So in the end, we're getting towards the end game. I think it's happening in this cycle. I may be wrong. It could be the next one. Um, and the, so the likelihood is, is that Japan and China kick it off with weakening their current, eventually weaken their currencies massively as the market starts figuring out that they're going to have to try and write off their debts in some sort of debt default hidden between the central bank and the government. Mm-hmm. People are going to start pricing that into Europe and then pricing it into the US, and we'll have that moment where everyone says, holy shit, we're in trouble, of which I think that everything ends up having to get renegotiated and whether we write off debts. And this is why I'm kind of interested in Bitcoin and a new economic system, right. because I just don't see how we can get out of this. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's quite a lot to take on. But to be, to be honest with you... and, and, and the, the nuances and the particular examples um, and some of the ways that it might play out in what you just articulated is, is unique. But, you know, I, I've spent time, uh, I've, I've interviewed uh, people like Jim Rogers, Mark Faber, and people like that. And they, they've been saying more or less the same thing for the last 20 years. And that's why my comment kind of like the timing issue is really, that's where the, the nuance is really necessary. And that's where looking at the entire web of things is probably the most uh, rewarding or beneficial because it maybe gives you a better sense of timing. Anybody can look at the macro and say, well, how the fuck is this going to be sustainable long term? But you don't know exactly when. And, and the, the, the kind of the frustrating thing and the thing that kind of messes with your mind is that it's amazing how long it's been able to persist that we're up till this point, that, that these strategies have, have been able to persist, even though objectively you look at them and you think, this is madness. And even if, if you look so, at 2008, go ahead. And that, that creates a terrible behavioral bias within all of us, right? Because we know the deep-seated truth, which is we shouldn't be involved in stock markets, bond markets, a number of things. Right. Because we just go straight to the end game. Everything's going to blow up. Right. Well, the problem is there's a 20-year cycle of rolling blow-ups, rolling bubbles, and you know, we're talking about a debt super cycle that came from the 19, basically 1950s onwards. Mm-hmm. So this is a big thing. It doesn't finish overnight. 
but we extrapolate too fast. So that stops people actually investing. Right. So a bunch of them just went, oh, it's gold, gold, buy gold, forget everything else, hide in the hills with a gun, buy gold. I got to be honest. Yes, gold, in, in two, that's what I did in, two, in 2006, seven, eight. I just said, you know, I don't, I don't have the mind to really play this, the, the complexity of it. I'm just going to go with the macro bet, which was gold. And we all know how that played out over the last 10 years. Yeah. And so gold works well and then doesn't work well because it's not a pure bet. Um, now, how I got around it is I looked at countries that didn't have the same issues. So ones with young demographics, low debts, um, that kind of thing. And you end up with the countries like India, mm-hmm. um, Singapore. You end up with, well, Singapore's a bit older population, but but it's still it's within that belt. Um, it's, it could even be Indonesia. It could be um, mainly they're mainly in uh, countries around the Indian Ocean, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, yeah. countries like Morocco. There's a whole bunch of these where there's huge investment opportunities, and they have completely the opposite setup. Mm-hmm. So the world has opportunities, and the other opportunity for me was always bonds. Bonds, you know, the, the bond market's not going to blow up until you get to the end. So you might as well ride that tiger all the way, because you know bond yields are going negative around the world, right. and that's not going to stop. It can't. So, so, yeah, a lot of people got paralyzed and got stuck with gold and gold only, and they sound like bitter people. And they are right, but they were too early and, and just they just jumped to catastrophe straight away, and that's not how it works. Yeah. So, be, you know, that being, uh, that being said, are we now at the juncture where the end game, as you called it, you know, that's kind of what your, your Twitter thread was all about yesterday is kind of, indicating all these precipices that we were on the edge of. Are we at that stage now? And the question I always ask to people that, that have that kind of opinion is it's real easy to say that, you know, this is the end of a debt cycle within a debt cycle or cycle within a cycle within a cycle, or maybe there's, you know, there's, you know the collapse of the system, the collapse of the currency, what, what, whatever it may be. But what does that actually mean? You know, what happens when when a, when a okay. major currency collapses, when major economies suffer it in, in the way, in the manner that's being described in these conversations? Well, um, so to go, so the why now is because we're about to go into recession. So my probability of a recession is extremely high. Could I be wrong? Of course. Yeah. But I would give it about a 70 to 80% chance of a global recession, including the US. So in recessions, bad things happen. So your probability of the end game spikes every time you start heading into recession mm-hmm. um, so that's why I'm focusing right now because if GDP grows at three and a half percent and and um, you're in the early early to mid stages of a cycle you don't worry about these kind of things you worry about them late cycle and this is the longest cycle in all recorded history particularly in the US right okay so what is what goes wrong when it does happen well it's difficult to know so we've had two examples that I'll bring to this one was the complete wipeout situation which was Cyprus. In 2012, I was in Spain when Europe almost ground to a halt. I mean, it was unbelievable. The banks were turning people's deposits into preference shares and then going bust, writing off people's money. Um, There was a near collapse of the entire banking system in Spain where I was. The ECB forced... Uh, Spain to take a 30, 30 billion dollars. There's nothing for the country the size of Spain. They forced them to take 30 billion dollars to stop the banks going under. I had to buy a bloody generator at the house because I was worried that we were going to lose electricity. 
Mm-hmm. I had to take cash out of the bank, and I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not the you know the the prepper. Right. Um. I I was, you know, it was like, oh my god, this is going to happen, and it came really within a week of it. Um. So that's what. So at that time, Cyprus was allowed to default because the Europeans went shit. If we have to underwrite all of this, Europe's gone. So what we're going to do is we're going to write a law that says we're going to bail in the bank creditors. So I, if you're if you've got your deposits. And they're over a hundred thousand dollars because hundred thousand is secured by the ECB. Hundred thousand euros, they're going to take your money away, and they're going to pay it to the debtors. Okay, that sounds fine. The rich people get stiff, but that's not how it works. Think if you if you own a gas station, right? You have a massive amount of cash in your bank account mm-hmm. because you have what you know, razor thin margins on all the gasoline. So you've always got you know, call it a million bucks in your bank account, but your, your profits maybe twenty grand. But what happens is they took all the cash, all the businesses, yeah. insurance companies. I mean, everybody got killed. People who were buying houses, they they got their cash ready to pay for mortgages, all taken. So it wiped out a system and the cash machine stopped working. There was no way of getting money. The ECB plus the UK had to airlift in cash, physical cash, to keep the economy going. So that's the worst case scenario. It was a catastrophic event. The stock market fell 99%. People got absolutely screwed mm-hmm. and it's still recovering. The other side of the equation is the 1930s where we had a similar setup and we had a rolling bust, which you know, 1929 was part of it. But then one economy after the other left the gold standard. So they basically devalued their currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the final shoe to drop was in 1932, I think it was, or 33, is the US finally decided to leave the gold standard because the US dollar was too strong versus everybody else. And that's kind of what I think is going to happen. Now, the odd thing about that situation is obviously we went into war. <laughs> right. And I'm not suggesting that that is necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened is those economies did eventually get out of it, but it took them from 1933 to probably 1953. That was 20 years. You know, we were already at 20 years lost, 30 years lost in Japan. Yeah. And we're also, we're 20 years lost in, in Europe right now. Mm-hmm. So it's not unfeasible that that's the kind of event that we have. So I think maybe somewhere between the two, somewhere between Cyprus and the 1930s, which is, look, it is a bad event. People are going to get hurt, particularly the retirees. If you're in your 30s, great. Finally, you can afford to buy some assets at some reasonable valuation like stocks or or even property. Yeah. But if you're 65 years old, baby boomer, and you've, you've pretty much got your retirement pool sorted out, you're in big trouble yeah. unless you take some action. So maybe that leads in to, to Bitcoin here, but do you think that the, the magnitude of, you know, should this come to pass, the magnitude of this unwinding, will that you know, inspire or or will people demand or will it just cause a change in the system or will it just be kind of a minor restructuring of it, but not a complete replacement of something new Um, with something new? The answer is, is who the hell knows? Um, Also, who knows whether we, the central banks figure yet another way of extending it and massaging it and keeping everything together. Look, that's a possible outcome and it's a reasonable probability as well. Yeah. But the genie is out of the bottle because people are saying, if the, even if they do that, it's not going to stop the development of the, call it the alternative financial 
infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the extreme amount of intelligence and work and man hours that's going into Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, um, blockchain technologies and digitization of assets and tokenization of assets is almost unparalleled at this point. It was, well, unparalleled, that's that's hyperbolic. It was um, probably, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. I mean, it's sucking in everybody. So that process either gets accelerated or it continues, mm-hmm. depending on the outcomes. But the outcome is, is that white paper uh, from um, um, Nakamoto back when it came out was so mind-blowingly clever mm-hmm. in its, well, complication but simplicity of idea mm-hmm. that only now are we starting to understand how big the concept potentially is. Yeah, That potentially it is... As somebody called it on Real Vision, they called it the security truth machine. I it's like a, he called it an operating system for humanity. Yeah, which sounds very ridiculous, <laughs> but basically, it's a re, it's a storage of all global assets in a different yeah. way, and a new accountability, and a new means of transaction, and a new means of value, and a. It is almost too big to get your head around, and that came out of that one white paper. Yeah. It's, you know, going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, at first you think it's one thing and then it ends up, you know, going down all these different tunnels and, you know, and, and sometimes you get over, maybe overly philosophical about it and it's not quite, at least yet, that thing, but it really is amazing how many different things it seems to have the, capabil- the, the possibility to influence. And that's the thing, is it is nothing yet apart from an appreciating digital asset. Right. Okay. It's the what is giving it the appreciation is because it has so much optionality on so many potential outcomes of the future. Mm-hmm. Because as we know, there is literally 30, 40, 50 different applications at top level, not the micro applications of, you know, like, you know, trade finance or whatever. We're talking the big level of changes to the financial system, maybe 30 of these damn things. Yeah. So if that's the case, how do you price that option? You've got an option on top of an option on top of an option on top of an option. It is extremely valuable because it's kind of like the ultimate VC portfolio. You know you're going to have several hundred baggers within that, but your VC portfolio is going up in the meantime to, yeah. to try and price all of these opportunities. Yeah, and I've always just on that point, I've always found it one of the one of the many compelling uh, things about Bitcoin, and possibly it's in you know as in an investment scenario, it's just. You know, you accumulate the coin and you're benefiting from all those people you mentioned earlier who are incredibly intelligent and and motivated and working on building out many different aspects and functionality of of this network, actualizing a lot of that potential. I mean, you 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 benefit from that simply from from hold, owning a well, piece of the network, holding some well, of the coin. But this is the beauty of this bloody thing is it plays perfectly for behavioral economics. So as the value increases, it brings more people into the sphere Mm -hmm. to build more and more stuff because what you're basically getting is access to free money. So you're giving your work, your intellectual capacity, and in exchange, you're getting something of value, which is this digitized digital asset. So as it goes up, it encourages more people to do cool things with it, which forces the price up further. Mm-hmm. And so it is a really unique reward system 
and the the mining system is so clever. Yeah. But even the mining is rewarded, but but everybody's rewarded in the ecosystem. So it becomes like a vortex that sucks everybody in. And I'm seeing all of my macro guys get sucked into this vortex as they understand that the that the gravitational pull to this is extraordinary because the closer you are to the creation of money, the richer you'll become. Yeah. Now let's let's talk about that for a second because I know you come from that world, and so it'd be interesting to get your perspective. But you know, as a, a, a you know, lots of Bitcoiners, especially if they've been in for a while, they're used to, you know, having their point of view on what Bitcoin is, the potential role that it could play in the future, be dismissed over the years by the legacy guys. You know, like ads. Ah, internet money it's magic money it's not backed by anything we've all heard that stuff when we've brought it up at a dinner or something like that right and i know now you know i know more and more people are coming into it and i've 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 listened to a lot of the interviews and discussions that you've had with people and you know your what it seems to be the case is that everybody you know on an individual basis who's in the industry is involved, but they haven't gotten right. to the point yet where they can uh, get their clients involved through their fund or, or what have you. That's coming, but it's there's a lag time on that. Are there still people that you interact with at kind of the level that you're at, have been in the industry for a long time, that that still kind of don't see it, or is it has it gone past the point where you can dismiss it outright and you actually have to kind of look into it now because some it's gotten so much momentum behind it. The last chance to dismiss Bitcoin was at the bubble high at 20,000. Mm -hmm. And I got out in that rally. Um, I'd been in for quite a long time before that. I got out and it was like, okay, let's now see whether all that forking, all of the kind of weird changes that nobody understood, does this mean anything or not? Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin plummets as it does. And then out of the ashes rises the phoenix once more. And it's like, okay. This is now too robust to, to, to have any opinion. So I think that brought in the last people. They're like, okay, because macro guys, you know, you might be able to knock something down once, twice like that. But after a while, you know, it's kind of like the Amazon share price, Microsoft share price back in the 80s. Yeah, sure. You could see it full 80% or so. But then once it starts to recover, you know that something is being priced in that you're not seeing. Yeah. A macro guy's job is look at price action and figure out, okay, what is it? I don't know. Right. Um, and that's why it sucked everybody in. So I, you're right. I don't know a single person that doesn't really believe in this now. Yeah. But to different levels of understanding. Right. Because it is very complex. So people like to anchor it on what they know. Digital gold is the easiest for many. Mm -hmm. But that is, I think, probably entirely the wrong description. Um, but who knows and who cares? Well, I'll get your description on it in a moment. But do you think that the emergence of Bitcoin and then kind of its persistence, as you mentioned, boom and bust, boom and bust, and then people having to recognize that it's real and it's, it's here to stay. But when they make that realization and they decide, okay, I got to learn about it, whether you're a professional hedge fund manager or you're, you know, Joe on the street, in your education process of understanding what Bitcoin is and knowing that it's special because that's what you're hearing about it and you're trying to find the thing within it that's special, there's an education process that is kind of like a mirror to the existing legacy system, let's say. So, so basically what I'm getting at is to what degree do you think that people learning about Bitcoin as a result of it just being around for the last 10 years and everybody talking about it, has enhanced their education about the different attributes and elements of the legacy system and in 
you know, in majority, it's false. So let's say the fiat currency system and, and other aspects of it, the debt and things like that. How much do you think that has influenced what we're seeing currently in the legacy system and, you know, which you described in your Twitter thread the other day? Like how much is Bitcoin acting as a mirror to actually put pressure on the legacy system? I don't think it's putting pressure on the legacy system. I think it's happening in its own right. What is interesting is the education of people about central banking. People now talk about fiat currency all the time. And never, never used to be the case, right? No, nobody understood it. And it was, you know, in 2008, there was many of us like, you don't understand what is going on here. But people figured out they got screwed somehow. So I might as well figure out how I got screwed. Right. Okay, that was good. So that's why suddenly it was like, okay, is there an alternative? And Bitcoin came exactly at the right time. It's kind of magically, mysteriously out of nowhere. So um, I think people understand it. But as Bitcoin has this wrong understanding by many, mm -hmm. The financial markets has a wrong understanding by many because everybody just chose the it's all fucked. I need to get out. This, this is just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. It is a probabilistic outcome that takes time to play out. And there is a number of ways that it, it is wrong to walk out of the financial system. But it's right to, to create a parallel financial system at the same time, because right. then the, you have a smooth transition. You just do not want a, um, a difficult transition. Yeah. What you'd love to do is. Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, digitization just seamlessly merge and overpower the existing financial system. You don't want to turn the lights off on one and turn the lights on on the other. That doesn't work. That's, that, that is war. That's a lot more disruptive, yeah. Um, Way too much. So regarding, you know, you were saying that a lot of people that, that are starting to look at Bitcoin in your industry, let's say, fund managers, etc., and you say that most of their understanding is kind of the most simple one to get value from it. So it's digital gold, and I get that, and it's it's got a it's got a cap, so it's it's going to be it's very it's a scarce asset. And yeah, or the other thing is, I get blockchain. It's an interesting technology. We can use it for a bunch of stuff like securities lending or custody. Right. So they grab hold of one or the other, and we've all done it when we get into it. It's something to understand. Right. And as with big, you know, with Bitcoin and with everything. Our depth of understanding of it, and as a result, our conviction or lack thereof in it, is determined by our, by our understanding of it. If you just think it's digital gold, then you'll have a certain amount of conviction to put a certain percentage of, let's say, your, your funds under management into it. If you think it's digital gold and it's new form of governance and it's an option on blah, 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 all the things that it may, may be in the future, then you, that may dictate a different approach. So on, on the people that you are familiar with in, in, in your industry, how are they making either personal or if, if it is in their professional purview already, how are they making allocations based on their understanding? How aggressive is it? How, you know, what's their time frame on it? All of those sort of details about how they're getting into it. I think they are personally more aggressive than you'd expect. Macro guys look for opportunity. So my world is the macro world. Yeah. These guys look for opportunity. They look for where is the macro story. They understand there's a macro story behind Bitcoin. They understand uh, the changes. They understand the global macro, the issues within the global economy. So those guys have a pretty high percentage because don't forget, you know, one of their brethren, in fact, several of their brethren have gone on to make fortunes. Whether we're talking Dan Moorhead, ex-Tiger mm -hmm. Management, one of the most famous hedge funds in the world. Dan was a very famous hedge fund guy. 
he then sets up uh, Pantera. Mike Novogratz, super famous hedge fund guy. Everybody knows Mike. Novo goes and sets up Galaxy. Mm-hmm. John Burbank, super famous hedge fund guy. He goes and sets up Passport Digital Business. Pete Brigger, ex, another ex-Goldman guy, ex-Fortress guy, used to work with Novo, Fortress, massive digital guys. So one after the other after the other of the kind of great and the good of the industry are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not only – so look what they do. They first buy it themselves. They, they understand where it's going because they've spent some time because they're macro guys. They do their homework. And then they have the holy shit moment and they build a business around it. Right. They're all doing it. Yeah. So, and Dan Tapiero, who, had, who was just on Real Vision a couple of weeks ago. I saw that uh, interview, Dan, yeah. another macro guy, ex, you know, Stan Druckenmiller, Michael Steinhardt, Tiger, all of these guys worked with all the greats. He's gone over to the, he's gone over to the dark. He, he owns a gold business as well. Yeah. And he's now starting to heavily invest in Bitcoin. And when do you think they will be allocating client funds rather than just personally getting involved? I mean, obviously with well, Galaxy and stuff like that, they're launching funds and... Yeah, so then they're just finding vehicles and the ways to do it. So it's happening. So many of the hedge funds I know have allocations to crypto. Right. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, whether they're using the uh, um, Bitcoin Investment Trust um, or whether they're using others, the f- new futures contract will come soon. That will help people invest in it, make it a lot easier for people. Yeah. So it's coming and it's happening every day. So it's growing. And I know... There's a weird thing that goes on in the crypto community because most people have not come from finance. Mm-hmm. So they're hugely insecure about what do the finance people think? You know, can you validate this? You know, validate it. They hate the finance world, but they want validation from the finance world. It's kind of a, a weird thing. But all right. I'm saying is it's not going to be a one day validation. It is the slow adoption of this from everybody. It's a vortex mm-hmm. and it's a, that gravitational pull is sucking everybody in. The battle was won. It's like we talk about this with, um, I talk about this a lot with uh, people who are uh, environmental activists. I'm like, the battle was won two decades ago when we started every washing machine, every fridge, every car, everything changed its electricity consumption. You know, every, it's, it's now woven into the fabric of our lives that yes, there's many things that still need to be done. It's just a matter but of time. It's just a matter of time. The battle was won. And yes, you'll have some acceleration points and deceleration points in the battle, but the battle was won, and yeah. the battle in Bitcoin has been won. And so, what do you make of, say, to think of, you know, people in, you know, professional, whether they're fund managers or in, a, in finance, a finance professional in some capacity, who still dismisses outright? It's not my problem, right? So that you know, in the end, mm-hmm. well, I, no, I lie. Real Vision has done a lot of this from day one. Since we launched in 2014, we have educated and featured the great and the good from the um, Bitcoin, uh, crypto, blockchain industry and purposely have driven that message forward. When at first, when we brought this content, people were like, what the hell is this shit? We're not interested. Right. Over time, people grow because I understand its importance to the future. Yeah. So yes, I do. I take time to make that important within real vision and it is becoming a larger part of people's financial lives right so i do that on a personal level i don't i'm not the bitcoin evangelist because it is too difficult to explain to people yeah. which is problem one of the problems with bitcoin but it doesn't matter right. you, you, it's not your house you don't need to show it off to your mates and go look at my house isn't it amazing aren't i rich it's your own thing just 
it's like gold. You know, just do whatever you want with it, yeah. and it doesn't matter. You don't need to convert everybody. It'll happen. Right. You know, it's funny you say that because anyone who's passionate about this stuff gets into these conversations, right? You know, it's, they're stimulating. They're exciting. We all like having them, whether it's looking at the macro view and shifting over to Bitcoin or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I've had several of them. And it's either the person is, you know, very interested and attentive and, you know, wants to know more about this, this, this thing that they just hadn't had the time to devote to figuring it out, figuring out more, or they're you know really kind of stuck in the mud on on the other side of the fence and unwilling to kind of cede any ground. And I don't like you know it's not I don't care about anybody's opinion enough to get into like a heated discussion or an, an argument to represent you know this side of things. And it's part of the reason why I started you know the, doing interviews in in Bitcoin you know in 2015 and now being more focused with this show is because. And, you know, what you said you, you're doing with Real Vision is kind of what sparked this in me is because you're just kind of letting people who are involved in this, interested in this, working with this, tell their story. Talk about it, you know, why, why it's of interest to them, what, what they think it is, and then let that information just flow out into the ether and what it does, it does. And like you said, the vortex is going to keep spinning anyway, so this is just... A little massaging, you know, for anybody who's that, who's antenna that's right. is up. And people can accept, and the, that's the beauty of real vision. We don't really have an agenda apart from you need to know more about this. I don't care whether you like Bitcoin or hate Bitcoin. Yeah. But the point being, it's not going away. So understand it. Understand a little bit. Just even if you hear the first three minutes of an interview and turn it off, next time you might listen to five minutes, and and then after a while you'll have your own coherent arguments on why you don't like it. Yeah. And then maybe you start to see, oh, that guy I respect, and he's got an idea and you might broaden your horizon again i'm not my job is not to convert people to bitcoin enthusiasts it's for them to understand the changes in the financial world around them and to make their own minds up what they want to do right they might say actually for me my best opportunity is investing in saudi arabian equities go knock your socks off do whatever you want to do yeah. according to your risk tolerance and what is your investment framework all we're trying to do is just give people that information. As you say, just put it out in the ether. Just let me, and we do it with everything. You know, you know, Real Vision is not this doom and gloom pl platform that sometimes we get accused of. It just happens to be on a lot of people's minds. <laughs> right. And truth in finance was the core DNA of what we believed in. Right. So truth in finance means I need to have your opinion and I don't care whether I like it or not. Yeah. Um, that's not my issue. The world is too full of people being offended by other people's opinions. Absolutely. What we want to do, and we're not, again, you know, we're not there to uh, to attract kind of the crazy free speech of I can insult anybody anytime. No, no, this is high discourse, respect for people's opinions, and let's have a discourse. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's why the content has been so high quality from production to, you know, the, the content of the guests and the interviews. It's all been really, really great. Um, I want to ask you one more question before we move on, but so obviously the, the hearings in Congress recently about Libra and morphed into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally introduced to probably um, the public lexicon, at least, you know, in the political circles of people who follow the term shitcoin. And so I bring this up <laughs> because, you know, the, the Bitcoin community is very passionate about this issue that it's a Bitcoin only world and everything else is is you know maybe a, maybe a valiant and altruistic effort in sometimes although there's been a lot of you know fraud and, and bullshit in in ICO boom in 2017 and all that kind of stuff, but basically that you know Bitcoin is sound money. Um, that's the most important change that we need. 
everything else is putting the car before the horse and you know bitcoin will probably be able to do it itself later on when things are built on top of it what's i, I know what your your stance on this is or at least i think i do why don't you you tell me what your opinion is on that it's really interesting because if you go to the essence of bitcoin what happens so we end up blowing up the world everybody gets screwed in 2008 9 and then magically a god appears and delivers his 10 commandments and people say this is the one truth mm-hmm. and you know f- fucking humans stop doing this <laughs> just stop doing this there is not one truth the world is multi truths from different sides so yes it kind of came and it seems like that i nobody should care whether alternative systems, complementary systems, um, competing systems come into play. It is all the change you need. It is not about worshipping one God. Mm-hmm. It's about worshipping change to, ch- to create a better system. Yeah. So the Libra thing really fascinated me because there was the big issue with Bitcoin at its current phase. It is not usable as money, simply not usable. Um, everyone hoards it. It's too volatile. We try to you know, accept Bitcoin payments at Real Vision. It's just a nightmare. Right. Um, so, you know, because your PL goes up and down, you know, 80%. Sure, sure. It's just, it's not manageable. Now, maybe when all the coins have been mined and we get to this 100 trillion number that Plan B talks about in mm-hmm. his Twitter feed, which I think is genius yeah. in how he's valued it, really, really clever. When you get there, so the Bitcoin maximalists have got the fact that Bitcoin is now worth roughly what global money supply is. Okay, we're now in a different world. Mm -hmm. From here to there, that's quite a long way away. So what could happen in the meantime? I thought, and and maybe Bitcoin in the end does win because of that. I, I I don't know and I don't care. What is really interesting was LibraCoin did something interesting. They said, well, the biggest problem is, is governments don't want us to issue a global currency. So why don't we just issue a global currency based on their currencies? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, people have done this with stable coins like Tether or whatever. They're all based on the dollar. So they're just dollars. So dollar is part of the problem, not the solution. But what, what um, Libra did that was so clever, it created a reserve currency, like a special depository receipt of the IMF and SDR, because it was all currencies. It was dollars plus yen plus RMB plus euros plus plus plus. So what you end up with is a currency that has no denominator. So if you think of any other currency, if we talk about the Aussie dollar, the Aussie dollar we think of in terms of versus the US dollar. Mm -hmm. We think of gold, we think of it in terms of the US dollar. If you think of oil, we think of it the price versus the US dollar. Yeah. But this giant global coin idea means that the only other side of this equation is global money supply. How much is printed of that? So it becomes much more like a cryptocurrency mm-hmm. because you understand the defi- now the, 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 there's no def- defined supply and demand. So the, you know over time, because it's a fiat currency, it probably devalues, but gently. And the fact, because no one country can affect it overall. Mm -hmm. So what you've got is the most ingenious solution for everybody to trade a currency. Because for everybody, it's stable against global prices. Mm -hmm. It would even change the global pricing of all assets if this were to take hold. The other clever thing, it came out of the private sector. 
And governments won't stop it because you still pay your taxes in the underlying currency. So as a step and not the final solution, it is really clever. Is Facebook going to be the one that does it? I doubt it. Um, but I think it's extraordinary big breakthrough in um, in what the world needs from a currency. And, and this is what I also think is very important is the world of cryptocurrencies is now and digitization has now meant that we can break apart the components of what makes money and have different currencies do different elements. One could be the store of value. One could be the medium of exchange. They don't need to be the same thing. They just need to be fungible. Right. So I think that's an interesting change as well that people haven't got their heads around. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how all that plays out. I mean, it's it could go so many different directions. Well, that's uh, that's all I got for you, man. I I can't thank you enough for taking the time. That was awesome. Um, I know. I mean, I really enjoyed that. I'm sure lots of others will as well. Is there? I'm sure there's a couple of places you want to direct some people. Um, yeah. So if you want to. Yeah, dig me out on on Twitter. I'm very active. Um, you know, I I'm often as I can, if I can, um, reply to people and get involved. Unfortunately, my Twitter following is getting a bit big for that now, but I'm trying my best. Yeah. So at Raoul R A O U L G M I. Um, so GMI is Global Macro Investor, which is my research business. Um, so at Raoul GMI. So find me on Twitter. But look, if you're interested in anything to do with with markets and hearing from the greatest people in the Bitcoin crypto community. We've got content going back so far, everything from the hash graph guys to people starting exchanges through to, you know, the damn more heads of this world. You know, everybody's been on it. It's really interesting. So it's it's realvision.com. Mm -hmm. And we've got a free version out as well called Real Vision Free. So just realvision.com forward slash free. Then you don't even have to pay for it. If not, it's $180 a year. It's the Netflix of finance, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, you've heard us talk about it a lot in this interview. I'm immensely proud. So I said, in the answer to your question, uh, you said real vision, hard work. It is. But the other thing I am is incredibly proud of what we've managed to do. We've, we've basically completely disrupted the media industry. So yeah. It's and, and, and in my opinion, you should be made. It's um, you know also on YouTube, if anybody's wondering, it's, there's also a lot of them up there, different playlists for different themes and topics. Obviously, a lot of crypto and Bitcoin stuff. But... You know, if you're a geek about macro view of how the world works, it's definitely one of, you know, it's definitely a great destination. I watched recently, a couple of days ago, the Kyle Bass interviews where he, where he was talking about what's going on in Hong Kong. And, you know, he's been critical of, of that situation for a long time. And it's just, it's really interesting, the, the, the people you access and then the discussions themselves are phenomenal. So Yeah, I mean, we have, we're, we're super lucky. We're, we have unparalleled access to the, just literally the most famous people in the financial world and the, the smartest thinkers. But, you know, what I think for your listeners is interesting is the macro and Bitcoin worlds are colliding because they are part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's in everybody's interest to know as much about each other as possible because we're actually all part of the same team. Sure. So that's what Real Vision will do for you. It'll help anybody, whether you're a macro guy and you want to know more about Bitcoin, or you're a Bitcoin guy, you want to know more about your own space, or you want to know more about how you fit into the bigger space, it's all there for you. Yeah. And what are kind of plans on the future for Real Vision, if you don't mind my asking? Well, we are going to increase content in this area. We're just doing some actual some research internally now about how do we become 
one of the true voices in the space by bringing kind of our skill set into it. Because mm -hmm. I, yeah, I do think it's important and I think it's a very large market and it's massively underserved. There's some great podcasts like the one you're doing, but in television world, there's nothing. Yeah. So it's you know, a few YouTube influencers. Beyond that, there's nothing really there. So we're looking into that. Um, and you know, Real Vision, we're moving into a lot of live events as well. So they're always, they're always a lot of fun. Yeah. And if not, we just keep, um, you know, keep building out our fantastic, I mean, we've got one and a half thousand hours of video now. So, you know, it's an extraordinary thing. And how big is the team? Just out of curiosity? About 80 people. Wow. So we've got, so we've got about 50 in New York, 50 or 60 in New York with production studios and the world's coolest studio set, which is, if you'd imagine Keith Richards, city apartment that's what it looks like it's really cool because again you know we just like finance doesn't have to be boring sure finance can be a little bit rock and roll a little bit interesting a little bit more rebellious because you know what most of us that's what we are yeah um and especially know, we're not now the yeah especially exactly. now in, in the climate and the way things are changing I, you know i think you're you're allowed to express that maybe side of you got that was always present but had to be a little bit more buttoned up like it's nice to see that it's loosening the tie a little bit and you know having a bit more fun with it Exactly right. Yeah. Well, Raul, I've uh, chewed up enough of your morning. I very much appreciate the time. And uh, I do hope one day we'll get to do a face-to-face sit-down in person and continue any one of these many discussions that we just touched on today. So uh, I'd love to. I wish you all the best and uh, take care. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Really enjoyed it. What's up, guys? I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Raul Powell. If you did and you want to support the show in any way, you can do so by giving it a rating and a short review. If there are any people you'd like to see me have a discussion with on the show, email me at bitcoinrapidfire at protonmail.com and uh, I'll see what I can do to get them on. Thanks for listening. Take care.